It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. Today's special guest, um, Dr. Robert Brooks, he goes by Bob, is back today to discuss child rearing. He will talk about the seven important instincts that have evolved through multiple generations of parents and, care- and caregivers across tens of thousands of years, how they have raised children to become successful adults. Dr. Brooks's upcoming book, which he co-wrote with Sam Goldstein, PhD, Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success, features practical strategies to guide children in acquiring and fine-tuning these essential human instincts. It provides a solid foundation to prepare children for a resilient and happy future. Bob Brooks is currently on the faculty of Harvard Medical School part-time and as and is the former director of the Department of Psychology at McLean Hospital, a private psychiatric hospital. He is board certified in clinical psychology as well as listed in the Council for the National Register of Health Service Providers in Psychology. He has authored, co-edited, or co-authored 18 books, and in addition, authored or co-authored almost three dozen book chapters and more than three dozen peer-reviewed scientific articles. And um, Sam Goldstein is an adjunct assistant, um, assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry in the University of Utah School of Medicine and certified um, as a school psychologist in the state of Utah. Um, so I'm really excited to continue this show because we had so much to talk about last time we ran out of time. So um, I'm excited to start. Good morning, Bob. Welcome. Well, good morning, Randy. I, I've really been looking forward to this because uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion uh, last time, and it's always nice to be interviewed by someone who shows such an, you know, some of the same interests uh, that I have in uh, parenting and child development and the properly resilience through the lifespan. So thanks for having me on again to continue our discussion. You're, you are so welcome. And you're right. I am on exactly on the same page. This is a passion of mine because if we don't raise our children right, then we don't have a healthy society. That's mm-hmm. just the bottom line. Our children are our future, right? Oh, I, I, you know, I, it's just, it, it may sound so simple to say that, but it is. And our children also are our legacy. Uh, you know, what is our legacy going to be? And uh, the important part is what our children take from their experiences with us. And uh, now in my case, our grandchildren take from their experiences with us. So um, in Chapter 4, you talk about intrinsic motivation. And I, I really, um, what really stood out to me is the need for self-determination and autonomy uh, because the first question, the first sentence you say in our workshops, we, are, we often ask parents and professionals the following question. Who likes to be told exactly what to do and have no say in anything that they do? 
And often this question is met with smiles. Um, And so the point of that question was that children don't like that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I often, I'm I'm laughing, and (laughs) the same thing the last time you interviewed me uh, with some some of the comments, because I'll often say in my workshops, if any of you answer in the affirmative, I'm gonna, you're going to come to see me for a very intense therapy, uh, you know, in that regard. And I'm kidding a little, but uh, uh, and I may have interrupted, but it, it, it is a critical dimension of what we, we talk about in terms of the new book as well as all the writings on resilience. And I may have interrupted you, Randy, but if not, no, I, I can certainly start. Oh, okay. I just wanted to make, uh, to make sure about um, in, in terms of that. Uh, in, you know, intrinsic motivation, uh, I, well, as, as a psychologist, I became very interested in it, not just as a psychologist, but as uh, certainly as a parent and doing a lot of work with teachers. And back in graduate school, many years ago, I read the work, just to give a little, your listeners a little background, I read the work of a psychologist that, who was at Harvard at that time, uh, Robert White, and he was trying to break away from an old psychoanalytic model that said there are two main forces that motivate us in life, sex and aggression. And certainly they may be important, but he said what we're really missing is that from birth, from birth, there is a drive, for, he called it a drive for effectiveness, to master your environment. And you see it in little kids. You know, They'll get up and they'll take their first steps, they'll fall down, but they'll get up again. And uh, he, he basically said, you know, this is uh, kids are motivated to master their environment. And what happens, though, unfortunately, is that what intrinsic motivation is replaced by sometimes is extrinsic motivation. We start giving rewards for everything. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've worked with many kids who struggle in school. And what's one of the first things? They start getting rewards for doing their schoolwork rather than asking, well, what are the things that will motivate this student just intrinsically? And in that chapter and in my work, I started saying the following. What is going to really have people to feel much more of what DC and Ryan, the two psychologists who developed the self-determinist theory, to really feel much more that they have some say or control. And I'm just going to give it a little more background and then give more specifics. So when I've spoken to teachers, I'll go in and I'm just thinking about this because right before this interview, I had a discussion with some teachers and school administrators. I'll often say when I go into schools, how many of you like to be told, you know, as your opening question, exactly what to say or do and have no control over that? And n- no one really does. Then I'll, uh, I'll say, if I interviewed your students and asked them what choices or decisions do they make, and I make it clear, I'm not asking any of you to give up any of your authority, but what choices or decisions do they make, some of the teachers will say, I'm not sure, and I'll say, well, you have to think how often you will use words like choice or what the decisions they do make in your classroom and certainly in terms of parenting i'll say the same thing you know no one wants to be told what to do it interferes with a sense of self-determination and intrinsic motivation and then of course the next question that comes up is well how do we you know what do we do to promote that 
And starting at a very young age, I say to parents, we, you know, we give choices. We just do that as parents. Do you want to? Do you want to? have a shower, a bath first, or do you want to do this first? Do you want to do this first, or do you want to do this first? Very simple choices. And while they may seem simple, what they start communicating is a respect for the child in terms of making those choices. And then as children get older, what decisions do they feel they're making? Now, parents will sometimes say, my kids will want to just take total control. I say, no, you're there. And the decisions, if there was a decision they wanted to make that is beyond their means, this is how, what you do as parents, to set limits. But I said if kids are never afforded the opportunity to learn how to problem solve, because uh, I've often said resilient children see problems as things to be solved rather than overwhelmed by, if they're never afforded the opportunity to engage in problem solving and making some decisions, and even some decisions that may lead to, you know, them to, to fail at certain things, but they can get up again, then how can they ever trust in themselves? And how could they really uh, be better problem solvers or critical thinkers? So a basic dimension of resilience, and in our new book we talk about tenacity, is to slowly help children to feel that they do have a voice. And we need that as adults as well. And I'll just mention this one other point. When I was writing a book about resilience in adults, Randy, uh, I actually found research that that found that, and it's not surprising, if people go to work every day and they're basically micromanaged and told exactly what to do, it actually starts affecting their health, even their immune system. I found one study on that. So that there is that, as Robert White, the psychologist, said, a drive for effectiveness, a drive to master your environment, to be a good problem solver. So I know I touched on a number of things based on your wonderful question. Mm, no, it was um, you gave us really good information. And, you know, I mean, you don't say, what do you want to do? You give them guidelines. You say this or that, and, and you make sure that you are guiding it in a way that either one is fine with you. But at least the child is making the choice, right? Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up <laughs> because I didn't add it. I always say to parents, and don't give choices that you cannot live with because then you're going to get, you know, going to get be getting upset. The choices have to be ones that you feel comfortable with and your child can feel comfortable uh, you know with uh, and it, it's in every so many different activities uh, I, I've even uh, you know when the kids and parents have say negotiated about something like a bedtime or so I've even brought in things like if you should forget I've had parents actually say to kids sometimes I forget if I ever forget something this is how I would like you to remind me. And I'm, I'm, uh, you'll see why I'm saying this. Mm-hmm. I've often had parents say to uh, to kids and teenagers, uh, if you ever forget something, which hopefully won't happen, how would you like me to remind you? Mm. See, here too there's a choice. The reason I bring that up is, I, I, this I often kid about, but it's very true. Uh, I, I say, have any of your kids ever told you you're nagging them? And I raised my hand. I said, no, my sons would say it all the time. And then, be, and, But if the kid tells you how they would like to be reminded in case they forget something, then it's, it's more difficult for them to feel you're nagging them. And I have some very funny stories of one kid even saying, hold up a sign. 
and the parents <laughs> went along with it. They held up a sign about it. It had to do with his getting ready for school. And the, at first, the, the parents thought it was very funny, but it worked because it was the kid's idea. So he couldn't tell them, he, the, you know, they were nagging him. Uh, I think through the eyes of parents, we have to look at, okay, is the behavior, you know, these decisions, these problems, are they helping my child to be more resilient, to be a better thinker? Uh, as I, you know, as I said earlier, resilient kids and adults see problems as things to be solved rather than overwhelmed by. And if you're always telling them what to do and micromanaging them, they're going to feel very insecure about the decisions they make. And uh, they may make very poor ones or they may not even want to make any decisions at all, but, uh, you know, continue with certain problems that exist. Mm. And it can also make somebody um, very, um, what, what am I trying to think of? Someone who's just a pleaser, someone who just goes along with everything because they don't really have too much to say and they don't really know which way to go. So they're just, you know, mm-hmm. going along with the ride with everybody, too. Yeah, another very important point you just made, because if you have someone who pleases, then one has to say, but at what cost? And, you know, because if if people are doing something to please, they're not really being true to themselves. And eventually, that could really strain a relationship. And eventually, I mean, it could lead to someone not really thinking about what is it that I really need? What is it that I really Mm -hmm. want? Not in a narcissistic way, but just really to be uh, helpful uh, to themselves, if you uh, will. Uh, and you sometimes see in the same family, you'll have one kid is more oppositional because they're fighting against parents, not giving them a choice. And then you'll see someone who's a pleaser. And parents will say, in one sense, they could be fooled and say, well, the pleaser is much easier to, you know, uh, to relate with or whatever. But both of those kids, if, if parents are micromanaging and not developing self-determination uh, or responsibility, both of those kids growing up in that household are going to suffer, even yeah. though the, the way they're even though the way they're coping is very different. The inner feelings of being really squashed down are not, and uh, you know, and it's not easy. I just want to add this point too. I always say to parents, look, being a parent is like walking a tightrope at times, and you don't want to lean one uh, without a net underneath. Hopefully, you're not too high up, but mm-hmm. you don't want to lean too much towards one direction or the other, or you know, you're certainly going to fall. So it's not always easy, and uh, you know, to know well, you know, what decisions can I help my child make? What ways can I involve them to feel more empowered? But we we know that we all want to feel our voices being heard. And, uh, and, you know, just because the talk I had a little earlier this morning is, you know, with, you know, teachers and administrators, teachers have to feel that they have some making some decision, you know, because that's where intrinsic motivation is. And kids have to feel that they are making some decisions. It could be very small uh, decisions. even, you know, if it's a book report, what book that's selected or, you know, how is it the book report presented? All of these, though, these small things really add up to communicate to the child or adolescent that I have faith in your ability uh, to really make, start making uh, some decisions. And as parents, what we have to learn is as kids show more responsibility, we have to be able to allow them to make more decisions about their life within reason. I mean, we certainly have to step in if it's some dangerous decision, uh, but that, that's part of, you know, being a parent is learning to let go also and to have your kids more and more uh, 
uh, you know, make some of the uh, decisions. And now having two grown sons, and I know we talked about it because last time, having two grown sons, it, uh, you know, it was wonderful as they got older to see some of the decisions. Now, maybe not everyone I would have agreed with, but it was wonderful to see the thought they put into the different decisions they made. Yes, it definitely works. And it works very quickly with children, too. You know, for for parents, you know, all you have to do is, if you haven't been doing this, all you have to do is just start doing it, and you're going to see the progress happen very quickly. Children sort of uh, yeah. light up when you do that, right? Yes. it's uh, As a matter of fact, um, I'm smiling to say that because uh, this may, I, I don't know if this is going to seem funny, not necessarily a humorous way. I've often said to parents, Ask your kids, especially if par- parents who say to me, "My kid says I'm almost, na- I always nag, but if I don't nag, they don't do what you know they should be doing." I say, "You know what? The next time, ask your son or daughter if they feel you're nagging, you're nagging them." And most of the parents, Randy, will immediately say, "Why would I ask? They think I nag them." I say, "Yeah, but then say, I really don't want to nag you, so I'd like to figure out with you." How to whatever that now whatever the issue or problem might be, how do we solve this? What's the best way of handling it? And parents, even those who have been skeptical, who have done it, have said what a difference it made. One is, if, you know, I always say if your kids are driving you crazy, in a fun way, I say this: drive them crazy. Totally change your script and what you say or do. And uh, and I've had parents say, my kid did say that I was nagging, but I did get into saying I really don't want to, so I really want to figure out what will be helpful. And it doesn't mean right away you, the kid, you know, your kid's going to say, oh, I'm going to change my way, but it, it starts a much more of a dialogue going. It breaks out of what I call, you know, in my book, a lot of people have written about the negative scripts we have in our life, and I've, in my books, I've written about we are the authors of our own lives, and that doesn't mean there's not a lot of things uh, that we have little control over, but we do have control over changing some of those scripts. So uh, that's why, not that you could see me smile when you brought up what you just brought up. I can think of many parents who said, Bob, it really worked. You know, it really, and I said, part of it is because you changed, uh, you know, you changed the script and uh, just a lot of funny stories where they still, you know, I said to parents, in no way does it give up your authority, in no way does it allow your kids to engage in uh, behaviors that might be very counterproductive, but you're getting into a dialogue, uh, you know, with them. Uh, so, you know, it, it is important for us to change the way we are. Like you just said, I, I've, I've had parents tell me how, quickly sometimes that script changed because if the parents change their script then the kids changes his or her script and it can be very quick and parents will say it's much more enjoyable this way some parents i must admit uh it's a little more difficult if they've been micromanaging and controlling for a while some parents it's really a struggle for them not they're just ready to jump in at any moment and tell the kid, the kid what to do, even though they've just told the kid it's your choice. Then they they'll just jump in and say, "Well, I'm not sure you should do that." And I say that's mm. going to defeat the whole purpose. That's so true. It does. It does. Uh, yeah, yeah, very much so. So in chapter eight, um, it's mm-hmm. called. It's titled entitled virtuous responsibility. What is virtuous mm-hmm. responsibility? Well, uh, yeah, we gave these titles just for the, you know, for the listener to know um, 
Maybe I should give a little background. We call these instincts, Randy, and it's not instincts like, uh, uh, you know, in some species, a bird building a nest for the first time and knowing what to do or, or a fish swimming upstream to go back home. What was exciting, if, if it's okay, I just want to give a little background, is in my collaboration with Sam Goldstein, we had, you know, written a lot about resilience and we and the qualities of resilience and the qualities of needing self-discipline or self-control so you could be resilient. And then what uh, happened is um, Sam had approached me. I mean, we were collaborating for so many years, and we talked about this. He presented this. He said, you know, there are, just like I talked about intrinsic motivation uh, and Robert White saying from birth there's this need to master your environment, that there is wonderful research to show that there are wonderful qualities, attributes like motivation, like optimism, uh, you know, like compassion, empathy, and like responsibility that are actually there at birth. There are signs of compassion and empathy, say, you know, in a few, uh, someone who's a few months old. Intrinsic motivation, Robert White felt it was right there from birth. And I'm just giving this background. So we called it instincts because they're there from birth, and we, then we put it under the general, there were seven main ones under the general uh, concept of tenacity. So, I, I recently did an interview where someone said to me, you know, it's, your book is very hopeful. And I said, well, in what way? Uh, I, thought, I think it was hopeful. I think most of the books are hopeful. Said, because what you're saying is there are attributes there. The seeds are there already. It's We have to figure out as parents and caregivers how do we develop these seeds rather than even having to think about planting seeds. And it was an interesting way they put it. So one of it was with virtuous responsibility. And virtue has a lot to do with the ethical standards and moral standards that we develop. And it was more than uh, uh, being responsible in the sense of helping others because we had another instinct with that. Basically, what we were feeling there is, and again, there's research, that people, our society, if you will, because we say these instincts help our society to grow and develop, our society would be much better if people will take responsibility and accountability for their actions. And the sad thing is we know that in politics and other places, a lot of people do not are not accountable or responsible. So what we were trying to say there in early age, we have to look at how do we help a child to feel more responsible and accountable for their actions. And what we basically say there is, one, we serve as a model. If we don't take responsibility or accountability for our actions, if, if, if children grow up in homes where they see the parents always making excuses for what they say or do, it's much more difficult. So we always say to parents, you are a critical model. If a child sees you and maybe something hasn't worked out or you've done something wrong, actually willing to apologize, taking responsibility, that's going to help them. And so what we say there is if we're going to lead lives where we have much better relationships, then we have to think about, you know, what, what are we responsible for? And in my career, I've worked with a lot of people, and, you know, very nice, but they, there's always an excuse. It wasn't their fault, and it was, you know, it was someone else's fault. The problem then is you're never going to grow or develop. So virtuous responsibility was one of the instincts where we felt it's really being virtuous. It could involve helping others, but it's really learning that as we 
develop. And as we go into our adult lives, there are going to be things we say and do because we're human that may not uh, be some, you know, may not be as effective, but that we're willing to look at it and not blame others and be able to say, what is it I can do differently? It ties to a notion I write a lot about in resilience, personal control. And what I mean by that, it's like the serenity prayer. You focus on what you have control over. And one of the things you have control over is to be able to take ownership for the things you say and do. Uh, and I give examples in that book and in some I, you know, where there are a number of people, and we've had a number of politicians, not to blame just politicians. I mean, it could be in any walk of life where it seems their default when things don't go well is to look at who else is to blame. And some parents do that. They blame, they'll blame their kids rather than saying, is, what is it I could have done differently so my child would not act this way? When I've given workshops for teachers, what is it that I could do differently? And it's not, you know, I, I say to people, let's not get into the blame game. Because once we're blaming ourselves or others, not, but let's, because uh, uh, words are powerful, let's look at it as, what do I take responsibility for? You know, what can I do? So, um that that you know that instinct is very important for me in terms of really I, I think in terms of having a society that is much more respectful of each other. You know that um, that blaming um, pattern is something that mm-hmm. I think we're seeing more and more of, and I don't know what's causing it, but as somebody who is in business and, and you know works with the general public all the time. Mm-hmm. We have so many people who want to blame others or blame us Mm -hmm. for things that they do, like not showing up for an appointment. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, it's because you didn't call us. Well, we didn't call. We we did call you and we left a message. Well, I don't check those messages. So how would I, you know, and and just Mm -hmm. like a whole list, a whole host of uh, reasons why they're not responsible for something that they should normally be responsible for. What do you think is causing this in our society? well, it's, it's you know it's very interesting. It's certainly been a more intense. I'm not going to get into politics with some politicians who everyone else was to blame and you know a model. But what I would say to parents is we have to start in our own home. I'm not really clear. You know, someone. It's interesting because I, with any of these instincts, I wondered are they being more assaulted or you know if that's the best word because sometimes I feel they've been assaulted now than before. Uh, and it, it, I, so I, I really don't know. I, I, it seems it's more prevalent. Sometimes I say it's just is it that well-known figures seem to be doing it more. I don't know. So it, it's interesting, Randy, with your question. I've often said, okay, it, it is there. It seems more prevalent. But then what I say to parents and other caregivers is whether it's more prevalent or not, and I do think I, I agree with you, I think it's more prevalent is we then have to look at, as we're raising kids, what is it that we do? Because, you know, we, we, only have, we only have control over our own behavior, basically. We have to look at what we can do in our homes, in our communities, so that people would take more responsibility. We have to look at how do we model responsibility and accountability in that regard. So, yes, I think there may be more. Uh, who knows? You know, uh, one of the things that I don't want to sound overly simplistic is if one goes on the Internet and sees the comments, like I'm a big sports fan. I was reading a sports story, and then there were comments 
the total lack of responsibility of some of the people leaving comments and how they write comments. And I, I said to myself, you know, if kids are growing up in this day and age where they're reading these comments where everyone is blaming everyone else, I'm sure that has an impact, you know, on that. Because it could be a mild story about a sports figure, and soon people are writing these very, very negative things. Now, again, I don't want to blame the Internet or whatever, but there, in answer to your question, there are a lot of other forces coming in to play a role. And there are too many people, as people have said, the people who leave some of the comments on the Internet, they, if they were in a room with that, you know, you, they would never necessarily say that. But it's like they could do this without any uh, fear of any uh, retribution, if you will. But I, I always go back when, I, when I'm feeling a sense of, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And when parents say that to me or teachers about, you know, their interaction with their children or their students, I say, there are things you can do. Because personal control is, what can I do in my classroom? What could I do in my home? One of the things I've often asked in, in terms of questions and common content we're talking about, I've often uh, asked parents this because it has a lot to do with resilience and how do, we, how do we be more responsible and what do we do when we, the setbacks occur. I will often say to parents, if I were to interview your children, and these are the kinds of questions I was raised in my work, if, you were to interv- if I was to interview your children and ask them, what do you say or do when you make a mistake, meaning you as parents, what do they observe, what would they say? I've had some parents' kids say, please don't ask them uh, this question because they don't think they, ha- you know, the parents don't think they handle it very well. But I say, you know what I wish every kid would say? Dr. Brooks, they take responsibility for it. Dr. Brooks, they say, you know, we made a mistake. What can we do differently next time? What can we learn from it? But one little girl said to me, they, when my parents make a mistake, uh, they don't apologize. They, uh, instead, they use words they tell me not to use. I always love what kids say. And one of my all-time favorites when I said to a boy, when your parents make a mistake, what do they say or do? He said to me, what's a double martini? Well, he, they would go have a drink if, you know, that. I, that's, so, and then I would say to them, Randy, because I really try to get very specific for parents to think about these things. If I were to interview your children and ask them, how do you deal with them, your child, if the child makes a mistake, what would they say or do? And here again, I wish every kid would say, Dr. Brooks, they just come over and say, what can we learn from this? You know, I could become more responsible about it. But I've had kids say, they scream, they yell, they say things like, why don't you use your brains? Well, if a kid is constantly barraged with negative comments about making mistakes, they're not going to want to take any kind of responsibility or accountability for the mistakes because it leads to being put down and it leads to, you know, to messages that are very hurtful. One boy actually said when his parents said to him, you have to start using your brains. He was a 10-year-old boy, so in therapy, he teared up and he said, I started to feel I have no brains. And, uh, and you know, it, it, so uh, the if your question again, as all your questions triggered a lot in terms of we have to look whether there's more of a lack of accountability or responsibility within our own home, our own community. We have to look at it. What is it that we could do to really, uh, you know, engage uh, kids and relate to kids in a way where they will show a greater sense of responsibility and we put the word virtuous in there because it's really tied to what are our moral and ethical codes that we follow and we want our kids to learn 
Well, this book is just so important. It should be it should be a requirement for every every new parent because oh, these well, are thank just, you. these are new tools. These are tools that every parent should know for raising a healthy child. Um, you know, children are here to learn and grow. So they come into the world. They have to make mistakes. They have to do things. This is how they learn. And I don't understand why children should be criticized and put down for making mistakes. Children can't possibly know these things. They're, they're, they're young. They're learning. Um, we need to be patient with them. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. Yes. I'm going to underline what you But you know what? Your field of expertise in narcissism, the problem is that some parents forget that, and they think any their kids any of the kids mistakes which may be very quotes normal mistakes you make is some some way a reflection on them yes. it, it hits them in a narcissistic way uh so that you know i think last time i shared i really struggled with this when my oldest son rich who's very successful today wonderful child and adolescent a wonderful man maybe i'm prejudiced about this but when he wasn't doing his homework for three or four years, he thought his homework was optional, and I did not, nor did his teachers. I, I almost, you know, I handled it very poorly. I think I talked about this last time of constantly mm-hmm. saying, you got to do your homework, you got to do it, rather than be sitting down and figuring out what the heck is going on, because the issue was, and I'm, I'm really glad that that happened, because it got me to do a lot of self-reflection. The issue was, I thought that this is a reflection of my parenting. And Rich, uh, you know, I, I'm smiling. I would say to my wife, our youngest son, Doug, would do his homework. I'd say, an open school night, I'll go up to, to speak to Doug's teachers. You could go up to speak to Rich's. But it's like this narcissistic blow. How could Bob Brooks, the expert, because one of my fields of expertise is motivation, the expert on motivation, uh, and, and all of them had heard my talks about motivation, you know, look, his son's not doing his work. But what I failed to see was Rich's beauty. He wasn't doing his work, but he was president of the youth group in town. He he volunteered at a homeless shelter to teach reading, which were more, more important activities probably than the grades he received. But why I felt it was very helpful is I said, you know what? We have to be very careful that we don't try to live our lives through our kids. And if if they make mistakes or whatever... It's exactly your point. Instead of saying, you know what, we all make mistakes, and what can they learn from it? Instead, that we get angry and we say certain things that are not going to be very uh, helpful. I always say, no child was put on this earth to make us feel like a good, you know, a good parent. There are going to be struggles along the way. And the other thing, which I, someone else probably said, I heard somewhere is, children need our love the most when they seem to deserve it the least. Mm-hmm. You know, and because those are the times they're hurting. Uh, so, and you know, with all of your wonderful work in narcissism, when I've worked with families where that that's a pervasive, uh, you know, kind of uh, climate, if you will, uh, it's it's like this narcissistic blow to the parents. So the kid feels it's something else you said before. They have to be good. They have to be pleasers so that they could keep their parents' love. But you know it so well. I mean, you talked about it last time, and in many uh, instances, what what do you lose in yourself, uh, you know, as a child growing up in that home mm. and having to break away from it? So I, I probably went, maybe I, dig- I digressed a little, but it was... Um, it's uh you know we have to look at our own issues our the own 
uh, the, what we bring from our past into our parenting. Because the other thing, the sad thing is that you're, uh, what I was thinking about from your comment is how many parents grow up in a certain home where they they are not given a, a where they do not experience parents being responsible, uh, where uh, they are micromanaged and they fall into the same trap. They they repeat the same pattern. Sometimes, even though it's very, uh, we didn't like it. It's the only thing we know, and you know, I have there could be generational narcissism, and it takes a lot of courage and certain experiences to break away from that. And you know, you've written and talked about that a great deal. Yes, I mean, this is so important. We we have to heal ourselves before we can raise. <clears throat> healthy children because parents think that they can sort of, you know, skip over that step and that they can just do it better for their children. But it's not true because if you don't, if you don't repair what was done to you in the past, you are going to repeat it. Your children are going to grow up with, with weird kind of messages that mess them up. Yeah, because it's the one sense to use the concept of scripts. It's like the only script you know. Mm-hmm. And I've had I've had adults I've seen in therapy who will tell me it's the only script they know. That they like. I had one father who wanted to really. Uh, he had, he had a young son. Kid was about five. He was hesitant to hug him. And you know I'm a firm believer in really touch and hugging. I mean nice hugging. You know. Uh, and but he never saw he never experienced it with his father. So someone might say, well, then he especially should have done it. It was almost like he didn't. It was like a behavior he didn't even know how. And then he started saying, I'm even talking like my father. I'm being critical of my son. And he was one of the ones I said, what words would do you hope your son would use to describe you? But what do you say and do? And he, I remember this father very well. Saying, and he he knew he was stuck, but it, it t- took a, a lot of courage for him to start change. He said, "I think my son would describe me the same way I would describe my father." And then the father, this father who I was seeing, you know, started to cry. He said, mm-hmm. I, "I never wanted that way." So sometimes the first thing is to be, even be aware. On the positive, this father was at least aware. There are some people who are not even aware they're repeating it that much. You know, Daniel Goleman in his all his work about emotional and social intelligence talks about self-awareness being one of the most important qualities to be able, be able to. And it's not easy for a lot of people. It's not easy maybe for all of us, but especially some to be aware of how we're coming across, to be aware of what is triggering some of our feelings. Uh, you know, again, it's on a different level maybe, but. I said, why am I getting so upset with Rich? He's not failing. Okay, he's getting, you know, uh, lower grades than I think he's capable of. But it really had to do with, you know, self-awareness. I'm almost feeling that his low grades are a reflection on me as a father. And that Mm -hmm. I'm here I am talking about motivation and I can't motivate my son. Well, you can't motivate another person. You you can set, you know, you could set up a certain climate where hopefully it'll be motivated. But what I learned is my son, Rich, was very motivated. It just wasn't related to school for a number of years. It was related to doing other things that would, as I mentioned, you know, volunteering to teach reading to homeless people. uh, that, That was much of greater interest to him. And rather than saying this is what, you know, I talk about looking at your kid's strengths, their beauty, or what I call their islands of competence, all I looked at is what he couldn't do. 
And rather than what is his beauty and strengths and how do I build on those? You know, I always say to parents, look, it would be very different if your kid was failing in every subject. Then you'd have to really look at what is going on here, which wasn't failing. He just wasn't doing his homework. His grades were being brought down. And uh, and I, though, I'm sure if Rich was to describe me in those days, and this is when I started asking myself the same questions I was asking other parents to ask themselves, Rich would say, I think my father only cares about my grades. And mm-hmm. when I came to that realization, I said, I don't want Rich to, you know, leave home one day and feeling that's all I care about. So, you know, my, I had to have my own self-awareness and self-reflection there uh, in that regard. Yes. You know, so many of my clients who have suffered emotional and psychological abuse in childhood <clears throat> who were working through the, were working through these issues now as adults. And some of them even were working through relationship issues, but it goes back to, um, to the childhood. I see this all the time. I see this that where they're having problems with their children that reflect exactly how they were raised and they generally can't see it. And I have, I had one client who uh, he was from another country and his father thought that his role was just to constantly motivate this child to make sure the child was going to be successful. But I'm not talking about from 13 up. I'm talking about from like birth up. Hmm. And so the child was never allowed. He was never allowed to play. Mm-hmm. He, it was always about accomplishment, accomplishment, accomplishment. That's all his life was. But he could see, could not see past that to realize that this was not the way a parent should have been treated him. So he was really blocked in that way. And then as a father, he was totally blocked and he was doing the same thing to his child, but he was completely unaware of what happened to him as a child. And he did not want to go there. He didn't want to go there at all. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, it's what you bring up. Uh, I'm sorry, did I interrupt you there? Because, no. Uh, no okay, ahead. because um, it's always interesting to me, well, a couple of things. One is the lack of awareness. That's why I was always glad when I, the 25 years ago, when I was reading Emotional Intelligence, talking, when Goldman says there has to be some awareness. Uh, and I, I had this intruding thought. Some of these people, like the man you mentioned, the only reason they came in to see me was because their kid was having so many problems that either the school or pediatrician said, you've got to go see you know, someone, and they referred them to me. Else they wouldn't have even stepped put in my office uh, because they didn't want to go there. And sometimes at first they would, didn't want to go there because they felt there was no problem. They just didn't want to deal with it. Uh, in in that regard, uh, and and sometimes I think it wasn't just not seeing the problem. There was a real fear of going there because there was a volcano of anger ready to erupt. Uh, you know, probably given so many of the circumstances that had gone on in their childhood, it uh, it your example also brought up over the years in the many workshops I've given. Uh, where some say par- parents, uh, someone grows up in a home where parents don't speak with each other or yell at each other, whatever. 
and they'll say, I thought that was just what was normal. And then they would say they would go to a friend's house, you know, as a teenager or something and have a sleepover. And they said, those people, they really, my friend's parents, they spoke to each other. They, they held hands. They, you know, and it was like this was a whole new experience for them. They, they never knew what they really lacked, if you will, until they saw, went outside that immediate family in that regard. Uh, I mean, what you've brought up, it just it gets so complicated because uh, I've had people say, what finally brings someone into therapy with you? And I say, you know, in the number, uh, not, I mean, a small number, obviously, but some of my adult patients originally came in to see me about their kids. And that was the only reason. And they felt forced to come in to see me about their kids, but they wanted their kids to be better in that regard. And then, you know, you start talking to them and you see that there is really a lot that they have uh, that they have to deal with in their own lives in that regard. True. And, and, and that's so, you know, the work you do is, is so important because, you know, what you're really doing is help people break out of uh, – a script that has been forged by a, you know, in a, a home where it's uh, dominated by narcissism, and it's not always easy. Uh, and no. sometimes, and it's very scary. I, I'm, I'm just in what you've said on this. Very scary for some people uh, to leave that because the unknown of what's going to happen if they do. What are the feelings that are going to be aroused? Uh, is it going to lead them to now not, not be loved by the parent, even though, I think we talked a little about this last time, even though the love in an narcissistic home is so conditional love, I'll love you if mm-hmm. you make me feel like a good parent. I'll love you if you get good grades. I'll love you if you're a star and, uh, you know, in the athletics, whatever it may be. You know, um, I watch Dr. Phil because I learn a lot from him. There are some things I think he is totally wrong on, mm-hmm. but there's some things that he's totally right on. And mm-hmm. one of the things that he says always when people come on his show to complain about their rebellious child, he says, it's not a so-and-so problem. It's a family problem. Yeah. This is so true. This is so true. Children are a result of the environment that they're in. Yeah, certainly every child comes into the world with a different temperament, but there's a wonderful concept, uh, you know, in in child development called goodness of fit. And what that is, is basically you may have a child with a so-called difficult temperament, but the goodness of fit says you as a parent have to learn to start accommodating to that rather than expecting your child to accommodate to you. So we know kids with a difficult temperament from birth. I mean, there's wonderful research from birth are more difficult to please. One mother said, my child seems insatiable because couldn't please. Some are more shy, some of this. So what you just brought up is what I say is the goodness of fit is I've often said to parents, it's harder for a kid to start to accommodate to you than you to accommodate a kid. And I don't mean by accommodating, giving in, but really being able to say, if this is who my child is, can I learn to accept my child? I know this is going to almost sound, you know, so simplistic. Can I truly learn to accept my child for who he or she is rather than what I want them to be in that regard? Because that is really then, if you can, that's then unconditional love. 
and it's with unconditional love. And it's not easy, unconditional love. Like I saw that with my own son, Rich, when he wasn't doing work in school. But unconditional love it helps a child really to develop their sense of self, helps a child to feel more, much more secure, helps a child to feel they're able to take uh, you know, risks or able to fail without feeling like love is going to be withdrawn in that regard. So I, I totally agree about a family problem. As a matter of fact, in therapy, I always try to, you know, we, we, people would talk about the designated patient. And, of course, if I was seeing an adult coming in by himself or herself, you know, one could say it's them. But especially think about kids. I, I really started saying, you know, it's, it's not just the kid. It's exactly what you, you, you mentioned before, Randy. I started seeing, I think, felt it was important to see also at least have some meetings with siblings. And I know anyone who does primarily family therapy is going to say, well, I always do this, but someone who was not trained in that model, I felt it was important to get to, to know the siblings and the parents. I would also, not everyone does this, I would always like to have at least one individual meeting, if not two, with each parent alone to hear about their background because I said, how are my comments Going to, uh, how are they understood if I don't understand a little about the parents' own background and what they, what they will, you know, how they experience their own parents? So th that also helped me in terms of seeing it not just, quotes as a designated patient, but it's a whole family, and it's, the f and it's up to the family, and uh, especially the parents, to figure out ways to help solve some of the problems that were going on. So it's very yeah. important what you mentioned. Yeah, and... There, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking there are other ethnicities, other countries where children are to be seen and not heard. And mm -hmm. so, so this kind of psychology is not, it doesn't always work when the culture is different. So have you come up against that? Yeah, you know, well, we could spend an hour more in that one. Uh, when I w worked at, I still do consulting there, Ben McLean Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital. It's very interesting what you brought up because when I was head of psychology, the psychology department, head of training, we even the American Psychological Association, I, I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up, uh, really, uh, I don't know if it was a requirement, but we built it in, had a course related to different cultures and working with different cultures and understanding these cultures because there was one kid who was once admitted the parents uh, to the hospital the parents uh, i would say it was abusive but in their particular culture where they came from putting down your kid and ridiculing them but this went beyond that i felt was uh you know they couldn't see empathy as being a, per, a strong parental force a, for positive and we actually got a consultation with a psychiatrist who came from that same culture and he said yeah, you know, we may not be as empathic, but these, this, especially the father and his behavior towards his son, it's going far beyond though that he's, he, mm -hmm. the father was really humiliating his kids. So you have to understand the cultures, but what that brings up is, uh, I hope this isn't a digression is one of the things I've learned is one, you have to as much as possible try to understand the the culture, and each family has its own culture, but then they're in a big you know in a wider culture. One of the things I learned over the years is in, in no try not to disagree with the cultural practices or these people are not going to listen to you. 
And so some people say, well, then if you don't feel cultural practices are helpful, like in subcultures, maybe accepting uh, corporal punishment more than another culture. One of the things I learned, and that's why, again, your question was so important, is how do I communicate then an acceptance of the culture, but not necessarily every practice in the culture? So just to give one example, and it came up a lot around corporal punishment, I would say to parents, when you hit your child, what do you want to accomplish? And they would typically say, they want, I want them to listen to me and be more responsible. And there's a wonderful technique in psychology they're called joining techniques. And one of my favorites is focus, even if you disagree with 95% of of what the other person is saying, focus on the 5% you agree with. And so what that means is if parents says, I want them to be more responsible, I started to learn, Randy, to say, you know, so do I. We actually have some of the same goals. Where we may disagree is the best way to reach these goals. One of the ways you've tried to reach them is through hitting your child, but I don't think it's working as effectively. Can I share with you another way? Mm. So what I'm doing is... And I don't want to sound like a miracle worker because I'm not, but it's amazing how many parents will say, what is another way? And it doesn't mean like they're going to say, I never thought about this or whatever, but at least it gives you an opportunity to enter their world, not put down their cultural practices, to to join them around wanting your child to be more responsible. I found there's at least one or two things you could join parents around, even if you're not in agreement with their parenting practices. So you can get a dialogue started in that, you know, in that regard. And it's not always going to work, but I found that joining technique, respecting their culture, and uh, respecting what they've tried to do, but then inviting them to hear another point of view, they're more willing to hear the other point of view if you haven't, if they don't feel in any way you've put down their cultural values or their, their practices up to that point. I, I really like that. That works. That re- that's really wonderful. Well, I, in, in some of my books, I talk about and the book in Tenacity. Talk about that also. It's I start asking, how do you prepare people to hear something you want to say that you think will be helpful, but they probably won't at first. And so I started talking about preparing people to hear a certain message. And that's why I even started saying to parents, or it could be to anyone, but I have something to say to you. If, if, if you disagree, please let me know. Well, they're going to disagree anyway, but if you bring that up, they're more willing to listen to you. I have something to say to you, especially if I feel parents are going to feel criticized. If you feel I'm being critical, please let me know. That's not my intention. So I started more and more to talk about preparing people to hear a message and someone said, is that manipulative? I said, no, I don't see it as manipulative. I see it as a way of opening up an avenue for you to have very meaningful discussions with these people. That's so true. And that's a great skill that we should all have. Uh, yeah, you know, I because, wish I would have yeah. learned that with my <laughs> own kids at times. But I think I've gotten better at it right. in that regard. I'm laughing about it because it brings back many memories of that. But because it is we, well, a very important yeah. thing. Well, we we don't want to put people on the defensive, and that's that's really the basic that's goal exactly here. That's exactly it. Yes, right. if you immediately say something and the person's on the defensive, they're not going to hear your message. 
uh, you know, in that. And, you know, once I started preparing people more, my life became easier as a clinician, as a parent. Uh, and I thought back to many situations, especially when I was, ran a lock, you know, a locked unit in a psychiatric hospital, how, you know, things I would have handled differently later on. But that's what we learn because too many people, especially if they've had difficulties or they feel judged, they're almost poised for attack. I've, I've said it's like what, almost whatever you say, they're poised for attack. So what you want to do is lessen that of sense of their feeling that they're going to be attacked and where you're really respecting what they have attempted to do and you're offering another vantage point, another way of handling a difficult situation. Mm, so valiant. That's such a valuable um, skill for us. And I'm sure that everybody's listening to that and saying, oh, you know what? I think I could use that with so-and-so, uh, my <laughs> yeah. husband, my children, whatever, my <laughs> yeah. boss. Uh, yes, it's it's in any interpersonal relationship, actually. Yeah, it really is. So um, we're coming down to the end. I know this oh, is really, really fast. Yeah, really fast. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to speak with you. It's uh, Yeah, I really enjoy it, too. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about your book, Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instinct, Instincts for Lifetime Success. Mm. And um, so I do recommend this for every parent. Um, Thank you. Not just because you're on the show, you're very welcome, but because it yeah. says it. This is how you raise a child to be a healthy individual, and that's what we. That's what the goal should be. Not a mini me. We don't want to raise a mini me. We want. Right. To, we want to raise a child, a healthy individual, and the goal is to raise a healthy adult that can function in society and do well on their own. Um, or, as I say, they leave the nest and fly uh, because we want our children mm-hmm. to fly and soar once they leave our, you know, leave our, uh, our home, our grip. But anyway, it's so, you know, I love all the things that you shared and there's so much Thank value you. in what you said, so much value. So is there anything you would like to leave us with? No, I just want to thank you. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, it was a pleasure last time and a pleasure this time um, uh, to be interviewed by someone who really uh, shows the interest you have. And as we talked about last time uh, briefly, just many of our ideas just resonate uh, with mm-hmm. each other. And um so I, I hope all your listeners got a lot out of some things I, you know, that were mentioned, and um, I'm glad we do. We do know that there are these in the book, you know, these inequalities that are there from birth, very positive qualities for us to be able to nurture in our in our kids. But you, it has to start with our own lives, and uh, you know, uh, parents have to look at themselves, and caregivers have to look at themselves as well. So I really appreciate being uh, asked to be on 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 you know, on your show. Oh, you're, I look forward to it as well. So um, for the for my listeners, um, the last show was on May 18th. So if you want to hear Dr. Brooks, uh, the first show that we did, the interview, you can go to the May 18th show and um, you can hear that too. And we talked about a lot of really valuable stuff then too. So uh, both really, uh, really great shows. So thank you. Thanks for coming back. Oh, 
thanks for inviting me back. And uh, it's really, it has been a pleasure. And uh, I, I will be posting the links for both shows on my uh, website. I'm just up, updating some things. So, uh, okay, great. Uh, for people also uh, see here, because uh, it's just the hour has flown by just like last time, Randy. Uh, yeah. well, when you said we have a few minutes, I looked and I said, wow. So thank you so much, and I want to thank listeners uh, for listening. And um, as I said, I you know I hope they were able to get a lot from your comments and questions and uh, mine. So thank you yes. so much. You are so welcome. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at loveyourlife@randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hello. Yeah. We're, yeah. Hi. We're gonna oh, end the show. I, I'm gonna oh, end I'm sorry, it. Okay. Did I in- no, it's okay. All right, we're ending it.